one thing, thing I catch is what I've named the refill creep. So if a patient's insurance allows them to refill their medication, let's say three days early every month for the whole year, that patient will end up with an extra 36 days worth of medication. So they're essentially filling 13 months in a 12 month period, which can easily go overlooked on a report, but that calculates to a significant increase in their daily opioid use. So kind of highlighting some of those unique and detailed aspects of those reports from a pharmacist's perspective is really valuable. Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show where we believe that quality measurement leads to better outcomes. Let us become your go-to source for all things related to quality and medication use in healthcare. We will hit on trending health topics as they relate to performance measurements and find common ground for payers and practitioners. We will discuss how the Equip platform can help you with your performance goals, and we will also make sure to keep you up to date on pharmacy quality news. So buckle up and put your thinking cap on. The Quality Corner Show starts now. Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. This is your host, Nick Dorich. We welcome you to the PQS Quality Corner Show. For the month of April, we wanted to tackle the subject of opioids, particularly managing opioid use in patients to ensure proper patient care and pain management. Before we go further, I want to give a quick overview about opioid use with some data and statistics from both the CDC and the NIH. In 2019, nearly 50,000 Americans passed from opioid-involved overdoses. The use and abuse of opioids involves prescription pain relievers, but also extends to illicit drug use, such as heroin, as one example. Increasingly, this drug use may lead to other risky behavior by patients, which can lead to further complications and or disease progression. Up to 29% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain may misuse them at some point in treatment, and up to 12% of people using an opioid may develop an opioid use disorder. Furthermore, an estimated up to 4% of people who misuse prescription opioids may transition to use of heroin or other illicit drugs at some point in their life. Now, because of the impact of the opioid crisis, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has prioritized several steps to improve patient care and still manage pain. These include, but are not limited to, improving access to treatment and recovery services, promoting the use of overdose-reversing drugs, strengthening our understanding of the epidemic through involved public health surveillance, providing support for improved research on both pain management and the addiction process, and advancing better practices for pain management and patient care. Now, as we go through the month of April, we're going to focus on several ways in which pharmacists can be involved with some of those steps to help improve patient care and to manage opioids for pain management. For today's series, we're going to talk about opioid management screenings and best practices for those screenings for patients that need pain management. Today, we're going to talk with someone working in the field of medication therapy management, and we're excited to have Allison Knutson, PharmD, on the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. Allison, I think we're going to get into some great conversation today. And before we do, I'd love to hear from you. Can you provide an introduction, an autobiography, and a little bit about what you do in your role as a pharmacist today? Of course. So as Nick said, I am a medication management pharmacist. I'm also a faculty pharmacist at Park Nicollet Creekside Clinic. This is actually a family medicine residency training clinic in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. 
I am the sole pharmacist in my practice, um, in my clinic specifically, and I do work with a large interprofessional team. So we've got our faculty physicians and our medical resident physicians, nurse practitioners, social work, our care coordinators, and many other clinic staff. Um, I do see patients for medication management, like I said, and really my goal is to meet with patients to figure out what their medication needs are and make sure that those needs are communicated with the entire interprofessional team. I still remember in pharmacy school sitting in a lecture and the professor said something to the effect of the sheer number of medications available today and the complexity of healthcare has reached a point where it is impossible for one provider alone to do it all. Good healthcare requires a team. I think this is where I love my role as a pharmacist and as an educator. Um, I enjoy teaching clinical content to all learners, but also teaching the importance of interprofessional or team-based care to provide the best patient care we can. Allison, I think you're living the dream of many pharmacists, and that's getting to work as as part of the team with with other healthcare providers. You said it. You're the only pharmacist, and I'll I'll ask her ask you to clarify, when you're talking about education and teaching, you're not teaching just pharmacists, right? I mean, when you, when you say that you are teaching or educating other healthcare providers as well, correct? Correct. Actually, my main focus here is our medical residents. Um, as a family medicine residency, we have uh, 20 medical residents here, and that's a three-year program. So not only teaching medication use in primary care. So these doctors are going out into their family med practice using medications the best way they can, but also teaching them how do they use a pharmacist in practice and how do they rely on other care team members for patient care. Well, it's a pharmacist, the medication expert, helping to teach other healthcare providers about uh, medication. Seems like a great idea. So, Allison, we, we, we could focus on that, but we are going to focus on opioid management today and part of that screening. And uh, we'll, we'll jump into the questions. But before we do, I want to provide a quick rundown of what comes next. We have three questions written down for us to explore. I'll go down the list, ask the first question. Allison, you're going to give your response and insight. And I might have a follow-up question or two that leads to some quick back and forth as we summarize those key points. We're then going to repeat that process for the second and third questions, which will wrap up our primary content for this recording. When we get to the end, expect an exciting and fun question to, to end our podcast. And it, it's simple. That's what we're going to cover for today. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and we'll jump into our first question as it relates to opioid management. As we do, Allison, I want to consider this from the patient and prescriber perspective. So as this nation has looked to address the opioid crisis, there has been an ever-changing set of rules for how and where patients get their medications and even what prescribers may have to do before writing prescriptions for an opioid. This certainly extends to how a pharmacy operates and how they may stock opioid products, uh, and that can lead to a lot of confusion and frustration for everybody involved with the process. But as a clinician, you want to make sure that the patient is being treated appropriately. How does the changing environment for opioid management impact patients and prescribers? Yeah, this is a really, I think, important question, and I appreciate that focus on all parties involved because this is something that that is significantly impacting all ends of the spectrum. Um, I really like to focus on action and moving forward, but I, this is one area where I really had to stop and look back a little bit and had a more broad appreciation and perspective for these drastic changes that have happened in practice in the past 30 plus years. You often hear the pendulum swing. Where are we with the pendulum swing with opioid use? Um, but I, I think that is an important thing to acknowledge that it has come from a point of not even addressing pain to being required to address pain and treat it, often encouraged to treat with opioids. 
back to opioids almost being villainized in practice. So what happens not only to the prescribers, but more importantly to the patients on both extreme ends of that pendulum. So on one side, you've got the prescribers who are more comfortable prioritizing, evaluating and treating pain and often prescribing opioids. And maybe in their practice, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, being encouraged to prescribe opioids. And then there are those patients who have come to more or less expect them that this is a vital part of their treatment plan and something that they can expect from their prescriber. Then you have the other end of things, I think, where where we have hit in the last maybe 10 years or less which is those prescribers who want nothing to do with opioids. They're either not comfortable or not confident prescribing and managing them. They'd rather have someone who they consider a specialist, such as a pain management provider or a pain clinic, manage those opioids. And the other unfortunate part of that side of the pendulum is there are patients who may not be having their pain adequately evaluated or treated for fear of exposing them to any opioid at all. So how do we kind of, with all these extreme practice changes, how do we find that that medium? And this is where I I think similar to so many things in healthcare, it comes down to communication. So we need to acknowledge that there are patients who are very reasonable candidates for chronic opioid therapy, and these are medications that carry risks. So kind of what can we we use to to make sure that that risk-benefit calculation works out the best for all all people involved in the care team? A quick follow-up question to that, Allison, and thinking about that comfort level for anybody on the medical team. Is that something that, and, and given the the sensitivity with this topic, is is that something that matters? Just seeing patients more, you know, frequently. Is it working more collaboratively with others that are pain management specialists? Because you, you can always go and do CE on this topic, but I don't think that's necessarily the the right answer in this case. In my experience, I think this is a very cultural thing. I think it depends on what your practice colleagues look like. I think it depends on what um, the community that you practice in, what opioid prescribing has looked like in that community. And I, I think it's training. So in what way were providers, pharmacists trained in what role opioids play in the care plan for a patient? I have some additional questions, but I I think they actually bleed into our second question. So I'm going to go ahead and keep the ball rolling and We'll get to question two here. Healthcare providers may have a number of tools at their disposal, which can be used to help build that successful treatment plan for the patient. Addiction and other health risks are always present with opioid management, but much can be done to consider how we manage this care for the patient. Can you explain some of the tools like the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program or PDMP, Controlled Substance Agreements? Are the, what, what are some of the other items that prescribers, clinicians may have at their disposal for having this conversation with a patient? This is one of my favorite areas and I think is so crucial for pharmacists to realize the role that they can play with their expertise in using all these tools we have available now. I think we went from give everybody whatever opioids they want to no opioids, but really the answer is there are safe ways to use opioids with all of these tools. So the first one is the prescription drug monitoring programs, which I I will argue are probably the most practice changing for controlled substance prescribing in the past 10 years. Um, In most states, these are not only accessible to prescribers, but also pharmacists. And often they have a delegate role. So that prescriber can have a nurse or support staff accessing these reports to improve ease of use, essentially. Those concerns of patients that had multiple prescribers, they're going to frequent EDs, they have, they're have they doing the doctor shopping. This provides that transparency. And I've found that more than anything else, prescribers and pharmacists find this tool reassuring that patients are actually filling the medications that they say they are. I think the 
place I, I really find a big role is interpretation of these reports. And I think pharmacists are crucial here. One thing, thing I catch is what I've named the refill creep. So if a patient's insurance allows them to refill their medication, let's say three days early every month, for the whole year, that patient will end up with an extra 36 days worth of medication. So they're essentially filling 13 months in a 12-month period, which can easily go overlooked on a report, but that calculates to a significant increase in their daily opioid use. So kind of highlighting some of those unique and detailed aspects of those reports from a pharmacist perspective is really valuable. One, I'll kind of jump to one of the next tools, which not to sound like a weirdo, but is one of my favorites, is the urine drug screens, which we use in our practice. Um, we have actually set the clinical expectation that all adult patients on controlled substances get an annual urine drug screen, kind of a random annual. I, the first point is the goal of that expectation setting is that this is for all patients. It's not we're picking and choosing who we're worried about or who we think should get the urine drug screen. This is our what we see as our responsibility as the care team to make sure we're providing the best and safest care to all of our patients as our practice standard. Again, pharmacists are incredibly valuable here because the interpretation of those urine drug screens really weighs on understanding of um, pharmacology and drug metabolism and knowing if this shows up positive, does that make sense with the way that these drugs are metabolized together? I want to highlight with that result too, there or with that um, report, there's a really interesting study that was done with 114 primary care physicians completing a brief seven-question toxicology questionnaire of the 114, zero of them answered all seven questions correctly, and only 30% answered half or more correctly. And of note, they separated out 77 of those providers were already using UDS or the urine drug screen in clinical practice, and they actually did not perform better than the 37 prescribers who have not used urine drug screens in practice. So of course, that I'm curious, are these some crazy complex pathology questions. And honestly, they were very straightforward questions. What result can you expect from a patient taking oxycodone who is eating a large number of poppy seeds, which fun fact can actually result in a positive morphine test if there's enough poppy seeds? What would you expect if a patient was using acetaminophen and codeine? So again, the pharmacist is incredibly valuable of understanding how to interpret and appropriately apply those results for best patient outcomes. Allison, before we continue, I do want to ask a follow-up question. And these different tools can be helpful for managing the patient in the right way. And that's especially important now, given that there's a whole lot of uh, stigmatization around use of opioids. And as much as we as the clinicians want to do what's best for the patient, there, there may also be some biases that exist as we are working and managing that patient. But um, can you can you speak a little bit further on you know, how you make sure to manage that because, you know, a patient using opioids or using opioids at, you know, the right and safe doses and, and going through the right process, that can be a patient where that can have a very beneficial uh, return to a normal or full fun functionality of life. So how, how do you help manage that part and have the conversation with patients? Actually, you know, again, this brings in another tool. This is somewhere where we actually have great benefit from the controlled substance agreements. And that really gets back to that open and explicit communication of what the expectations are, not only from the clinic side, from the prescriber, but also from the patient. So we are telling them, here's what you can expect from us as your care team. But also this is a, this is a high risk medication and this is, we are on a team together. So we have expectations of you as the patient as well. 
I think the the appropriate application is one really important point. And sometimes patients fall into a category that, you know, they're misusing or they're not using appropriately because the results of a urine drug screen are inappropriately applied to a patient. So again, if you're going to use these tools, it's important for everyone involved that they're used correctly and appropriately. And you have so much other evidence of does the urine drug screen match what you're finding on the prescription drug monitoring program. Maybe they showed up for a benzodiazepine you weren't expecting, but that report showed that they actually were prescribed that medication from their psychiatrist outside of your system. So all these tools really work in conjunction, and I think it's actually important to be using multiple of them together for clear communication and to reduce that risk that you may have with prescribing these medications. Thanks for that additional comment. We, as someone that did training earlier today on setting appropriate agreements between coworkers, it's all about communication, and that applies in that same process here. Every medication has risks that are involved with its utilization. It just hap- so happens to be that for opioids, that risk or the the detriment from that can be um, somewhat worse, right, than it's say take, taking a, a blood pressure medication or something that may be more commonly acceptable. We'll we'll go ahead to our third question now, Allison, and this one, it's going to be pretty simple in the concept. You are a pharmacist as part of that medical care team, um, and there's a lot of other pharmacists that say, hey, this is great. It's great to hear that a pharmacist is being involved with this prescribing and being involved with the opioid utilization. What do we know about the impact of pharmacist-led medication assessments on opioid utilization? Do we have any results that can be shared or like some other areas of pharmacy, is this an area where we need to have more effective research to continue promoting that role? Well, as a as a teacher, I'm a permanent learner, so I always love people pointing out things that evidence out there that I might be missing. Um, but I, again, think this is an area where we don't have enough evidence about the outcomes from pharmacist impact on medication assessments. There are a lot of models of new interprofessional care teams and how pharmacists are involved in that work, but not necessarily how that has impacted outcomes of opioid use. I did want to share in my practice, we actually um, have a team of pharmacists within our health system that are integrated in the primary care clinics. And we are able to practice with a collaborative practice agreement within our with our primary care partners. We do that. We use that CPA to either reduce total daily dose of opioids or discontinue opioids, depending on what's appropriate. And it's nice to have that flexibility and to be a member of that team when really our goals are to prioritize pain management through the whole process. So we might be taking something away from the patient, which is a really difficult concept for patients to feel that this is the only thing they know has helped their pain and helped their improve their function, but for whatever reason may not be the safest option for them anymore. Maybe their dose is too high. Maybe they have comorbidities now that they did not have when that medication was started 10 years ago that makes this medicine no longer appropriate. Um, so when we're able to use our expertise for non-opioid medications, now that we have a lot of other evidence for other pain meds, you know, I'm constantly thinking of the duloxetine and the gabapentin and um, often using non-medication modalities as well to reduce pain or to help with pain management. I think that is a role that we really play within that team as well. The other area, I probably one of the areas where we do have the most evidence or impact is pharmacists being able to pr- provide naloxone, whether that is prescribed, whether that is through a um, 
collaborative practice agreement or a standing order. There are different laws in all states, but I believe most states now have increased accessibility to naloxone and really our biggest risk with opioids is overdose, intentional or unintentional. So having a treatment for that I, readily available is huge. And whether or not you are integrated in a care team, if you are in a state where you're able to provide naloxone to patients, I highly encourage anytime you see someone on an opioid prescription, especially if it's greater than 50 morphine equivalents a day, and especially if they're co-administered um, a sedative such as a benzodiazepine, I think it's vital that those patients have access to naloxone. As you were providing your response, Allison, I was, I was taking my notes based on your comments, and I was circling the topic and putting, hey, this would be a great point to, or a great time to interject a question about naloxone accessibility <laughs> and how that comes into the process, but you let us there anyways. And uh, so that that's that's really impactful. Um, what's that conversation been like with patients? It, naloxone now more readily accessible and more normal. Is it something now where if a patient's getting an opioid prescription, are, are they just expecting that, hey, you know, naloxone availability either coming from yourself or from the pharmacy that that, is that an expectation now or how has that changed? I universally, I don't believe it's an expectation. I would argue that it should be. And I think, you know, I think of it like if I have a patient with diabetes that's initiating insulin, they have to have their blood glucose testing supplies because I am putting them at risk for hypoglycemia by giving them insulin. I see this no differently. It's a medication that carries a risk and I have something to offer that might mitigate that risk. So whether intentional or unintentional, you're taking this risk, high risk medication, I think you should have this, or I will provide this additional medicine for you to have on hand. Make sure that the people you live with, your loved ones, someone around you understands what this medicine is and how to use it if for some reason it was ever needed. So again, normalizing and accessibility is huge. Great. We're going to be uh, covering that topic, naloxone, accessibility, risk risk mitigation, and harm reduction. We're going to be covering that topic in at least one additional episode in this series devoted solely to that. So I won't ask any additional questions uh, to you on that point because I'm sure we could keep that going for the next 30 minutes here if we went down that road. But Allison, this has been a great conversation so far, and it's great to hear how your role as a pharmacist as part of a, a healthcare team has been making an impact and to help improve patients, their pain management to use opioids appropriately. We know this uh, epidemic as it relates to opioids has been increasing in its, uh, in its understanding over the last 10 to 20 years. We know progress is being made and with this part we have to call out. Um, we're looking to address it because we want to continue to save lives. We want to continue to improve lives. Uh, and for many people, the use of opioids is, is appropriate. Those medications can be appropriately used. Well, Allison, with that, I have to say it's been fantastic having you on the Quality Corner show. It's always nice to have new guests, and it's great to have you share your knowledge on opioid management. Uh, but we're now going to transition to the end of our episode, and we're going to turn our conversation to something that's a little more lighthearted. And uh, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better, perhaps outside of just the pharmacy realm. Uh, we've talked about travel and travel recommendations previously, but uh, Allison, for you, uh, know that you're someone that likes to remain uh, active, know that you're a bit of an active or avid runner. And I'm curious because you said you're located in Minnesota. I have to imagine that that'd be a little bit difficult to run at all times of the year. So, you know, for, for yourself, how do you keep yourself active, particularly if it's going to be in a cold climate? Uh, I will say I greatly appreciate my workouts in my basement because although I enjoy running and, uh, 
I'm flattered that you call me an avid runner. I'm a I'm a bit of a fair weather fan when it comes to running and below zero temperatures. But having friends across the nation, I've realized that I'm a little bit of an outlier when I think it's warm at 25 or 30 degrees and take advantage of that quote unquote warm day to go for a run. Snow and ice are my break point. That's where I think I'll stay inside and work out in the basement. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for that, uh, Allison. Now, appreciate having you on the episode again for today. It was great to speak with you. If folks do have a question for you about opioid management, about some of the different tools that you spoke about, uh, is there a good way for them to contact you going forward? Yes, I'm happy to share my uh, email information. And this is this, I feel like barely touches the tip of the iceberg on a really huge topic um, that I've incorporated as a pretty big part of my practice. So happy to share any of my experiences um, and hear what experiences you guys are having as well. I also really encourage there are great resources available through the CDC that I have shared with prescribers frequently and they find very valuable as well. So feel free to check out the CDC website also. Great. And that email address is Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N dot Knutson, K-N-U-T-S-O-N at parknicolet.com. Excellent. Well, Allison, thank you very much again. Really appreciate your information that you've shared today. And that's going to officially wrap up our content for today's episode. If you like the episode today, or if you have questions or comments for the Quality Corner show, you can please reach out to us. You can DM us on Twitter at Pharmacy Quality for a quick response and specify that it's a question about the Quality Corner show. Similarly, you can contact us at info at pharmacyquality.com. If you have a topic, or if you would like to come on the show like Allison did today and talk about quality and talk about medication use, we would love to have that. So we look forward to hearing from you in the future. With that, I appreciate you listening to the Quality Corner Show, and there's one final message from the PQS team. The Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show has a request for you. Our goal is to spread the word about how quality measurement can help improve health outcomes, and we need your help in sharing this podcast to friends and colleagues in the healthcare industry. We also want you to provide feedback, ask us questions, and suggest health topics you'd like to see covered. If you are a health expert and you want to contribute to the show or even talk on the show, please contact us. You can email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what is on your mind, what we can address so that you are fully informed. We want you to be able to provide the best care for your patients and members And we wish all of you listeners out there well.